from Acts 8 through 15, as well as Acts 7, 54 through 60. Uh, please give your attention to the reading of God's inerrant and holy word. And that uh, first part is Acts 6, 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great works, did wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Sentients, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputed with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes. And they came upon him, seized him, and they brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And the second part is Acts 7, 54 through 60. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into the heavens and saw the glory of God and Jesus sitting at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now let us pray for the preaching of God's holy word. Father, I ask that you would bless Pastor Kaiser's lips, that you would speak the truth in love and without error. I ask also that you would cause Pastor Kaiser to speak with boldness. Our preaching would be in vain without your help and blessing. Father, I also ask that you would open our hearts to your word, that your word would yield a crop one hundredfolds in our midst. I ask this all in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, as I was uh, looking, glancing at a beautiful picture of the Taj Mahal on my screensaver, I thought of a story by Dobson. Uh, if you've read anything about the Taj Mahal, it's one of the costliest, one of the most beautiful uh, tombs, memorials uh, that uh, the world has seen, and um, I'd love to be able to see it sometime in person. I've only seen pictures of it. But Dobson pointed out that in 1629, the uh, Indian ruler Shah Jahan uh, started building this magnificent uh, memorial because his favorite wife had died. He was grief-stricken, and he wanted to make sure that there would be a memorial that would make her remembered forever. 
And so he put her casket down in the middle of a plot of land, and the first stones that were erected, he wanted them to be erected around her. From start to finish, he wanted all the attention to be focused on his wife. He wanted her to be remembered. Well, as the years rolled by, his grief for his uh, uh, lost wife kind of waned, and he was much more enamored with the progress of this project. One day, when he was... um, Looking through the project and the progress that had been made, he stumbled over a box, and being angry uh, from that, he said, throw it out. And it was only months later that he discovered that he had thrown out the casket of his wife, and it had become ruined. Uh, Dobson said, the original purpose for the memorial became lost in the details of the construction. Well, in a similar way, God made a beautiful monument to Jesus called the temple. And uh, he filled that in every way from start to finish so that it would be pointing to Jesus and so that people's attention would be drawn to their need of a Savior and the beauties of that Savior. Uh, He gave uh, priesthood, beautiful rituals, clothing, all kinds of things that pointed to the glories of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, as time went on, what happened is that Jews became so preoccupied with the rituals so preoccupied with the temple itself that they ignored the one to whom everything was pointing. And in the first century, when they stumbled over Jesus, they got angry. And they stumbled over his teaching. They said, throw him out. They did not want to have anything to do with Jesus, little realizing that the temple and all of those rituals have zero meaning apart from Jesus. They had actually made the idol... They were against idolatry, but they had made the temple into an idol that they worshipped. And when Jesus dared to say that the temple would be destroyed, they were infuriated because this temple was their whole livelihood. Everything of their life revolved around it. In fact, when he was kind of stirring up the status quo, um, they were upset because they said, Rome's going to take away our position and uh, uh, our place. And the place they were referring to there was the temple. When Stephen has the audacity to say that Jesus has already replaced the temple, they were outraged. So again, loyalty to the temple and preoccupation with the temple took precedence over the Messiah. Now, I've listed in your outlines there other accusations that they bring against Stephen, but I think for the most part, those are just a smokescreen for the real issue, which was that Jesus has replaced the temple and the ceremonial laws. Uh, They had preferred a form of godliness to the power of God. Uh, They preferred the temple to the owner of the temple. They preferred the types to the person that those types were pointing to. I mean, they preferred anything in there, even the oil that was being poured into the candlesticks. They preferred to the reality of the Holy Spirit that that oil was prefiguring. They had the shell, but not the reality. And what uh, Stephen does in chapter 7 is he gives a brilliant, a powerful answer to their absurd accusations. We're not going to be looking at that. I was planning to preach on chapter 7 today. Uh, We're not going to get to that today. We're just going to look at the accusations. We're going to start with the accusation that's given outside of the courtroom, where they're being tried, as it were, in the press. Um, Verse 11 Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So there's accusations one and two. He's blasphemed Moses. He's blasphemed God. 
And uh, they don't say how, but they get a little bit more specific. You have to be specific in the court. So in verses 13 through 14, they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. And then here comes the only thing that has any substance whatsoever. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. That's the real issue. Destroying the temple, changing the ceremonial laws. And I think this is a very, very important issue. And it's an issue worth spending an entire sermon uh, to look at because uh, Stephen considered it important enough to be willing to die over this issue. Uh, These uh, Sadducees and priests considered it worthy to um, uh, be something that they were willing to perjure themselves over and to kill Stephen over in order to hide the truth about uh, this issue of the temple and the ceremonial laws. And Luke considers it important enough. He devotes a good chunk of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, to this issue. Satan considers it pretty important because he's motivated these people to cloud the issues with all kinds of false witness and even the parts that are true to frame it in a way that it comes out really as a false witness. And it's unfortunate, but there have been some modern Christians who have actually taken some of these accusations seriously at face value and they've come to the wrong conclusions Uh, concerning uh, these words, and I think it's important that we look at each one of these charges before we move on to chapter 7. Here's the question I want to answer. Are these accusations true or false? And obviously, I think we'd have to at least say that the uh, one accusation, the first accusation I list there in verse 11 would be false, that he was blaspheming Uh, blaspheming God, but what about the accusations in verses 13 through 14? There are some Christians who think that what Christ established was something so radically new that it was not even prophesied in the Old Testament, it was not even uh, anticipated. They speak of this age as being the great parentheses. In other words, there's kingdom before that, there'll be kingdom in the future, but now we live in the great parentheses and there was nothing that the Old Testament anticipated about this. And they say this is the only thing that could have gotten these leaders that upset. Well, I think it doesn't really take into account what human nature is like. There's lots of things that can get people upset. But they say if it wasn't a new religion that was being established, why would they be so upset? And before we jump to that conclusion... I think you would have to admit that at least some of the accusations in verses 13 and 14 have to be false because Luke says they raised up false witnesses. So even in the court, some of it has to be false. Verse 13, they also set up false witnesses who said. And so I want to look at each one of these accusations and try to pull these apart and apply them in our own lives. And the first one we're just going to dismiss out of hand. Accusation number one. Uh, If you want, you can uh, try to figure out for yourselves why a person who so obviously manifested the power of God in his life, the presence of God's Spirit in his life, could be accused falsely of blaspheming God. It says something about the accusers, and it might be worthwhile for you just discussing that with your families. But we're going to skip over that and go on to point B. What about the charge of speaking against Moses? even if you set aside the, the inflammatory word blasphemy, did he speak against Moses? 
there are a lot of modern Christians who speak against Moses. Uh, the guy that I quoted earlier in the sermon uh, has on the radio said that some of the laws that Moses has, had established are, are terrible laws. You know, they are archaic. They're primitive laws. And so there are people who speak against that. I could probably give you the names of a hundred pastors who say that what Jesus did in the New Testament was to completely do away with all of the Old Testament, and they called themselves New Testament Christians. Okay, that's all we follow is the New Testament. Now, there are some who even go further than that, and they say any New Testament books that were written to the Jews, we are not to follow. They say don't follow Hebrews, don't follow James, don't follow the Gospels. They only follow the Pauline epistles. Uh, there's one denomination has several thousand churches in America, several thousand, many more thousands in South America that say that. But anyway, all of the uh, dispensationalists uh, in the past have uh, said that there has been a radical disjunction between the old and the new, and in a sense, they're saying he spoke against Moses. Uh, what I want to demonstrate is the, this charge is wrong, it is false on all counts. First of all, you couldn't have a so-called New Testament Christianity because there weren't any New Testament books written yet, right? Uh, those didn't come along for quite some time. And if you look at verse 7, it indicates there was a word that was spreading. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. What word is that? It's the Old Testament, right, that was spreading. That's the faith that the priests were being obedient to. And even later in the book of Acts, Paul praises the Bereans for checking out absolutely everything that he was teaching according to the scriptures. Which scriptures? It was the Old Testament. Everything he was teaching, and he praised them for that. He said he could, it, it could all check out. Uh, that's Acts 17. On another occasion, Paul said he was saying, quote, no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. Acts 26, verse 22. That's pretty inclusive. Uh, so even if there are changes, Moses anticipated those changes. He was the one who insists on those changes that uh, would come. Um, and it, it, when you really think about it, there were changes even during the time of Moses with regard to ceremonial laws. Uh, before the tabernacle and after the tabernacle, there were changes. Uh, from the time of Abraham on, there was a huge numbers of changes. And so if it wasn't blasphemy back then, why would it be now? Acts 26, verse 22, indicates there's not a single thing about New Testament theology that you can't prove from the Old Testament. Everything's there in seed form. Now, the New Testament clarifies and amplifies, but it's all there in seed form. Uh, Acts 28, and so those who say none of the church age was anticipated in the Old Testament, they're just, just flat out wrong. Acts 28:23, Paul says, his habit was, quote, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning to evening. So Moses was really their Bible. That's a, an absolutely false charge. He was not against Moses. Secondly, in Acts 7, Stephen goes to great length to demonstrate that Moses actually supports his position. There's not a hint in the whole defense that Stephen is against uh, Moses and that Moses should no longer be followed. In fact, he considers that charge to be absolutely ridiculous. Based on his counter charges against them, I doubt it's because of timidity. Uh, he was pretty bold in what he was saying. Thirdly, in Acts 7.53, Stephen says, 
you are the ones who are failing to follow Moses. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised and heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 53, he says, you have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So they were the ones, really, who were not following Moses. Now, why would they make these kind of accusations then? There is some basis for their making accusations, uh, even though Moses had anticipated that that there would come a time when these ceremonial laws would be changed at the time of the Messiah. If they don't believe that there's a Messiah and now they're making these changes, they're going to be pretty ticked off. So there are major radical changes that have happened. And so there was probably a basis for this accusation, but to call it blasphemy, to say it's against Moses is absolutely wrong. Now, if they took the word blasphemy out, took the word against Moses out and said, you know, Stephen's making some pretty radical changes then it would have been an absolutely correct accusation. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? I would say, first of all, we need to have so much of the power of New Testament Christianity about our lives that any Pharisees or any Sadducees who are out there could bring this charge against us. Okay? If we are not changing, if we are not growing there is something wrong. After all, we do live in the age of the Messiah, the age of fulfillment, the age of the Spirit, uh, the age of the kingdom, and we should be doing things differently from the age of promise. But at the same time, we need to be so committed to the Old Testament Scriptures that if people accused us of being against Moses, the charge could not stick. Here's a challenge that I would give to you. Can you prove every doctrine of our faith from the Old Testament. If you can't, you ought to try it. Try studying it. Because every doctrine of Christianity from the first century to the present, every doctrine that's been developed can be proved from the Old Testament. And I think it would be a a very healthy exercise to try. We need to be whole Bible Christians, not just New Testament Christians. Okay, third accusation is that Stephen blasphemed the temple. And I think we're getting a lot closer to the heart of what was a frustration for these people. The early church taught that uh, within one generation, this temple would be reduced to rubble, that there would be not one stone left upon another, and it was indeed torn down in 70 AD. Jesus had prophesied it. But to the Jews, this was absolutely unthinkable. Throw out the casket, but don't tear down the Taj Mahal, you know. Throw out Jesus, but don't tear down the temple. And so in verse 13, they say in court, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this place, this holy place. Now, they didn't realize how blasphemous it was for them, in effect, to be throwing out uh, Jesus in their effort to defend the temple of Jesus. I mean, who owns the temple? It's Jesus, right? It's his temple. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? Well, I think we apply it by saying that the church does not belong to Phil Kaiser, does not belong to the session, it belongs to Jesus Christ, and he is the one that we need to be following. Uh, We can apply this as well by saying that when we get a building, and God's uh, providence hopefully will get some building, that we must make sure that we do not allow the building to drive our priorities and to drive our vision. Uh, We could apply this um, uh, by... Now, verse 13, by refusing to get attached to even the most important things of life, which are tools that God has given in our hands. 
See, it's so easy to allow the blessings that God pours out into our lives to make us preoccupied with those blessings, forget the giver. To be so preoccupied with the gifts of God that we forget the giver. Accusation four is that Stephen blasphemed the law. Now, in his answer, Stephen will show that he upholds the moral law, and it's actually the Jewish leadership that's been breaking the moral law. In verse 53, he says, you guys have received the law, but you have not kept the law. And in the previous verses, Stephen says, this is what, the way it's always been. Your forefathers were constantly rebelling against the holy law of God. And so there is no way that you can accuse Stephen of being, of being a, um, a person who is blaspheming the moral law. He upholds it in his speech. Now, somebody might say, well, what about the ceremonial law? Uh, that's maybe what they were speaking of. And if that's the case, we're going to deal with it under point number F. But in any case, whether it was the moral law or whether it was the ceremonial law, they were false witnesses because Stephen was absolutely committed to preaching the law that was in the ceremonies. That's what the ceremonial law was. It was the gospel framed in the Old Testament, and he was absolutely committed to the principles that were given in the moral law. And I think we need to be such people of the book that when people bring those kinds of accusations against us, they would not be able to sit because we're people like verse 3 describes, men of good reputation. And now comes the only two charges which have any real substance to them. The sixth accusation is given in verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Now, there are two places where Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple. First one is in the Olivet Discourse. It's Matthew 24, and you'll find it in, the, in, in Luke, uh, Mark and Luke as well. But that was privately said to the disciples. The other place is in John 2, and I want you to turn with me to John chapter 2 because this is really interesting how he phrases this. Uh, this was spoken to the crowds, and I think this is probably what they had in their minds. It was certainly what they had in their minds when they brought their accusations to uh, Jesus during his trial. So the context is that he's gone to the temple. He's routed with a, a cord. He's routed the money changers and all of the sheep and the oxen. And I want you to look at verses 16 through 21. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Now, they're talking about the cleansing of a physical stone temple. But I want you to look at the words that Jesus gives in answer to them. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now here's a, a little puzzle to think through. 
If he was talking about the temple of his body, why did he use the word temple just after he's finished cleansing the temple and making a big controversy over the stone temple? I mean, the most natural interpretation that those people would give is he's talking about this physical temple that he's just finished cleansing. I think he was deliberately doing that. He was making a point. He was so tightly connecting his body's destiny with that temple's destiny that he said that when his body was destroyed, all of the temple and all of the uh, temple rituals uh, would go with it. I think that's the connection that he was making. And when his body was raised, there would be a new temple that would be raised with it. Revelation 21 Verses 22 through 23 calls Jesus the temple and the glory. And so Jesus is the temple. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. He's the Shekinah glory. He is the one who replaces everything that is in there. And so I think you could say that at least in part, these charges are true, even though they are falsely interpreted as being against Moses and against the law and as being blasphemous words. Now, I love the way that John Piper words it in one essay. He said, Jesus destroyed the temple the way a homecoming from Saudi Arabia destroys the need for letters. He destroyed the temple the way the rising sun destroys the need for streetlights and headlights. He destroyed the temple the way a descending reality destroys its shadow. In other words, it's not taking away something without replacing it with something better. Uh, it's not like you're losing out on anything. It's replacing it with the better. And so I want to ask you, if you are living in the reality of Christ's presence or if you are still living in the shadows. I mean, when you look at Stephen, even his face, he was so close to God that it was so evident to everyone the power of God was upon him. The presence of God's Spirit was in his life. Are you enjoying the presence of Christ or are you simply reading his letters from afar as if they were being written from Saudi Arabia? Now, both are good, but one of those is better, right? It's much better to be face-to-face -face with your husband or you're with, with your wife than to be receiving letters from afar. They're both good, but one is better. Um, are you living in the full light of the sun, or are you simply content with the dim car headlights that only show the road a few feet in front of you? You see, the fact that you right now are living in the age of the kingdom gives you such privileges that to live simply in the light of the old covenant is a robbery. You're robbing yourself. You're robbing yourself of incredible blessings. It would be my prayer that if these Sanhedrin people came up to you, they would see such a difference between their lives and what you are experiencing that they would become jealous of what you have. Or they would become maybe insulted that you're more preoccupied with the heavenly temple than you are with the earthly temple. That you see the glories of your relationship with Christ as being far more important than all of the ceremonies that they're in, engaged in. Could their charges stick in your life? Stephen knew the reality of what the temple pointed to. He gloried in God's presence. He gloried in God's graces all of the things that were flowing from Christ who was in the heavenly temple, whereas these guys, they were stumbling not just over Jesus, they were stumbling over even the brick and mortar that was there. They didn't understand the purpose of that brick and mortar. And so the question is, have you 
the purpose that that temple was constructed around, to fix your eyes on Jesus. It's what he Hebrews calls us to do. I think this is really the heart of what those accusations were all about. And I think because Stephen had the reality, he was so full of that reality, it made it worthwhile for him to die rather than to give it up. All it would have taken for him would be to say, oh, I'm sorry, guys, you know, I didn't mean to offend you. I, I like this, and we're not going to talk any more about this. No, he was so full of the reality of God, he would rather die than to lose what he had. Let's look at the last accusation. Depending on what customs means, it's either partly false or it's completely true. They speak of changing the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now, there have been two interpretations of this. Uh, the word customs can mean and frequently means the oral traditions of the Pharisees. In fact, it's most frequently used in that sense, and it's translated many times as traditions. Now, if that is what he is talking about, they are talking about here, he's uh, going against, you know, our oral traditions, then it is an absolutely false charge because Christ did not come to change these traditions of man. He came to abolish them altogether. You know, he was not going to submit himself to even the tiniest tradition of man because they treated it not as coming from man, but as coming from God. And he's saying, no way, I'm not going to give credence to the fact that there are laws that go beyond the Bible. There was no way that Jesus was going to do that. The Bible tells us not to go beyond the Bible. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. And so... That's interpretation number one, that they were accusing him of uh, ditching what now has become the Talmud. The second interpretation, and last week I was sort of a little bit swayed toward the first, but now I'm a little bit more swayed to the second one, but the second interpretation is that it's a reference to the ceremonial laws of um, Moses. And certainly the New Testament requires changes to those, doesn't it? Hebrews 7.12 says, For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. And so perhaps it was the ceremonial law that they were accusing him of blasphemy. See, if you don't have a temple, then you don't have any need for sacrifices. If you don't have any sacrifices, you don't have any uh, cleansing ceremonies, you don't have a priesthood, you don't have any of the rituals that were involved in there, which means they're out of a job. Their security is at stake. And so, of course, there is a change in the ceremonial law. But when Stephen said that, is it really blasphemy? Stephen starts his defense in chapter 7 by speaking of God's favor upon Abraham and God's presence with Abraham. And Abraham didn't have a temple. He didn't have 90% of the rituals that went on in that temple. And so there was a huge change in ceremonial law from the time of Abraham to the time of Moses. And if it wasn't blasphemy back then, why would it be blasphemy now? And even during the time of Moses, Stephen points out there was a change in, in Moses from before the tabernacle was established to after it was established. Then there was another change when there was the permanent temple because there were some changes in the ceremonial law. And then he points out during the exile, there was no temple. And so there was no ceremonies back at that time. And so what Stephen is doing is he is saying, look, guys, even on your own arguments, even on your own terms, this charge of, uh, of blasphemy is absolutely ridiculous. He's using kind of an ad hominem argument. 
not the bad kind, but the good kind, of ad hominem argument where you defeat the opponent's positions by using their own presuppositions and saying, you can't be consistent with your own presuppositions, is what he is doing. We'll look at that maybe a little bit next week, Lord willing. And so even if Jesus has not come yet, even if the Messiah had not come yet, his discourse in chapter 7 shows that the charge of blasphemy is simply will not stick. Now, of course, the most important point that Stephen makes is Messiah has come, and that the ceremonial laws pointed to Jesus. They were the gospel of the Old Testament. They were constantly pointing us, them, to the need of a Savior and the provision of a Savior. And so if you look at the moral law and the ceremonial law in this way, I think it'll help. The moral law was showing what our responsibilities were and how sorry we are in terms of coming short of those responsibilities. That's our responsibilities. Whereas the ceremonial law was showing God's promise and Christ's provision. It was the gospel. Both were wedded together. Both were important. And once Jesus came to, uh, uh, to continue to follow the ceremonial laws would be to ignore the teaching of those ceremonial laws. And that would make no sense. When Stephen accused them in chapter 7, verse 52, of murdering the very one that all of these things were pointing forward to, he was accusing them of killing their only hope of salvation, and he was accusing them of ignoring the ceremonial laws. You see the logic of what we're, we're anticipating chapter 7, but the logic of what he is saying is, I'm not disobeying the ceremonial laws. I've been preaching the ceremonial laws. That's what the gospel is all about. You are the ones who are ignoring the ceremonial laws and what they really mean. That's what he was saying. And then when they kill Stephen, they're killing the messenger. And I think there's something that we can apply from this point as well. First of all, you need to have such a grace walk with Jesus that legalists can accuse you. It'll be a false accusation, but can accuse you of being against the law. Now, what I mean by that is um, that you are so secure in God's grace, you don't need to pretend to be sinless, okay? You're so secure in his grace that you don't have to put on a facade that you worry about other people recognizing sin that is there because, hey, that's what God's grace was all about. And uh, you can confess your sin and, and get up again and continue to follow after the Lord and continue to follow uh, after his grace. And so uh, the, the need to have such a grace walk with Jesus, um, I, I think we, we need to have such a grace walk with Jesus that legalists, I think, can falsely accuse you of being against the law. But the second side of the equation is you need to have such a grace walk with Jesus that people can see that his grace is moving you to love that law and to embrace that law as it clearly did in the life of Stephen. And so the gospel of the ceremonial laws, we need to know that so well. We don't feel the sting. and We don't feel the curse of the law. Instead, we feel embraced in the gospel and the law becomes a delight. And everyone knows that you love the law. And so whether they were talking about the moral law or the ceremonial law, neither charge can stick. New Testament gospel was simply a re-preaching of the gospel of the ceremonial laws. Now, it was done away with. It had to be done away with now that the gospel or Jesus has come. And so just as moral law and ceremonial law always had to go together in the Old Testament, law and gospel always have to go together in the New Testament. You cannot separate them. Let me just sum it up.
If you're living according to the grace of God, you're going to receive false accusations. Some will accuse you of being legalists. Others will accuse you of being antinomians. You're just not going to be able to win, you know. You're going to win for losing, you know. But it's not such a bad thing to lose the favor of other people because it'll free you up to focus on the favor of God. And if God's favor and if his presence and if his power is in your life, it'll be totally worthwhile even if you're called to die like Stephen was called to die. I want you to uh, read chapter 7 in preparation for next week's sermon and try to see how every one of these charges is brilliantly answered by him simply telling the story of their history. Sometimes you can tell a whole lot more with a story uh, than you can uh, even with didactic uh, teaching. And this is one of the most intricately told stories in answer to their charges When I read this several years ago, I I kept wondering, how is this even an answer? I don't see how it's an answer to the charges that he gave. And the more I've studied it, the more I've seen this is an incredibly brilliant, especially in their context where they were big on storytelling. Brilliant, brilliant answer. So please try to read, if you can, chapter 7 before next week. But let's close in prayer at this time. Father God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that it has uh, rescued us from the law's curse and has brought us into the law's blessing. And I pray, Father, that uh, each and every one of us, uh, when we receive accusations from others, would find our security, would find our solace in the gospel of Christ, would not uh, find ourselves discouraged. uh, But at the same time, I pray that you would do such a powerful work of your grace in our lives that the charges would not be able to stick. And just like these people could not win the argument and finally just had to resort to violence instead of uh, actually winning an argument, I pray, Father, that um, uh, we would, even without a word, be able to convince people of the truth of your scriptures. I pray that uh, the power and the uh, reality of the fullness of Christianity that Stephen was experiencing would be a reality and a power that each one of us would experience as well. May you receive all the honor and all the praise and all the glory. In Christ's name, amen. Let's respond to the sermon by...